Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I don't know about you, but I think there's something magical about cats. When I was a very little boy, my parents had a dog, but as I grew older, our household gradually became overrun by cats. At one point, we had as many as 32, all of them with names and distinct personalities. They're funny old creatures with masses of law attached to them. This shouldn't come as too much of a surprise, as human beings have lived alongside cats for over 9,500 years. And unlike dogs, which humans set about domesticating over the course of thousands of years, cats appear to have domesticated themselves. In ancient cultures, cats enjoyed special status. In Egypt, for example, Isis and Bastet were divine cat-human hybrids, while in ancient Greece, if a family cat died, it was customary for everyone in the household to shave off their eyebrows out of grief. In Norse mythology, Freya, goddess of fertility in the new year, had her chariot drawn by cats. And in medieval Christianity, cats were associated with the Virgin Mary, featuring in art of the Annunciation and the Holy Family. In many, many cultures, it is seen as absolutely forbidden to kill a cat. And sure, it was always going to be lucky to have a cat around to help control vermin and catch rats. But there's a dark side to cats, rules we know to obey. They are said to have nine lives, to be able to see ghosts. If you sit in a group of friends, cats will come to complete the circle. It's unlucky in some cultures if cats of particular colours cross your path, and in some quarters, their pointed ears and the shadows they cast have even seen them associated with the devil. In the English Renaissance, 
cats became closely associated with ideas of witches and familiar spirits, and in Celtic folklore, Cat Sith, the king of cats, is said to be able to steal human souls if they don't leave him milk to drink. Whether it's Six Dinner Sid, Dick Whittington, or the strays you feed outside your own back door, we all have firm beliefs about cats. Some of us love them, some of us fear them, but we all know that if we're out in the wilds and encounter a big cat, then it would be unwise to stop to give that creature a tickle behind the ears. With this thought in mind, gather close around the Three Ravens campfire and listen in. Welcome to the Three Ravens Podcast. Sat on a tree Down a down Hey down a down They were as black As they might be With a down One of them Said to his mate Where shall we Our breakfast take With a down Derry 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 down Down Hello and welcome to episode 30 of the Three Ravens podcast. My name's Martin Vaux. I'm a writer, storyteller and English romanticism obsessive. And I'm joined, as ever, by my partner in crime and all dark arts, Eleanor Conlon. Hello and Happy New Year. Yes, Happy New Year 2024. We made it. We sure did. And episode 30... I mean, I realise we've now released over 80 episodes in total, Mm. almost 100 if you count Patreon exclusives. But in terms of covering the 39 historic counties of England, we've done 30, only nine more to go in our first lap around the country. Yeah, it's pretty exciting, isn't it? And here we are, sitting pretty in a new year with well over 100,000 downloads since we started last March. It's absolutely bonkers. Still, onwards ever onwards, eh? Indeed. And thank you, of course, to our new supporters on Patreon. Tess and Anita. All hail Tess, King of Patreon. All hail Anita, King of Patreon. A very warm welcome to you both, and we hope you're enjoying the brand new Three Ravens newsletter for January, published just this morning. Yep, and as ever, the newsletter is packed with the major English folk customs for the month, along with loads of other cool stuff from cultural recommendations of things we've been enjoying, to Zodiac and Celtic tree information, a new tarot spread to try, a magic spell for the month, and more. And that's in addition to our Patreon-exclusive Three Ravens Film Club episode, which came out last Thursday. Yes, that episode was all about the uncannily beautiful 1965 folk horror classic Quaidan. And because it's a new month, we've got a new Three Ravens Film Club film we're encouraging everyone to watch across January. That's right. As you'll know, if you've been following the film club for a while, we pick folk horror films from across the decades. And this month, we're watching a 90s cult movie, Cemetery Man, starring Rupert Everett. I watched the trailer and it looks quite booby and rather violent with fun puppets and special effects. So if you're looking for a laugh in January, definitely watch Cemetery Man and email us your thoughts by Monday the 22nd and we'll include them in our episode recording. As always, though, if you would like to support the podcast and haven't already signed up, please visit our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast and open up a magical world of exclusive content as well as all of our episodes ad free for just three dollars a month 
or $6 a month. But enough shameless self-promotion. Martin, it's New Year's Day. Yeah. Meaning we've got folky shenanigans to talk about. We do indeed. And if you've been burning the midnight oil celebrating New Year's Eve, then you might be inclined to let tradition slide a bit for today. But do not, for New Year's Day is wrapped up with all sorts of doom and portents. Well, of course, it's traditional to make New Year's resolutions on New Year's Day. So setting yourself some goals or ambitions for the year. And that speaks to the idea of starting the year off right. It does. And to help you on your way, you might want to engage in the very long running tradition of dipping your Bible, by which we mean opening the Bible on a random page and seeing what you find. It's a very, very old form of divination. It is. Although if you're looking for something a bit more elaborate and ceremonial, we heartily recommend observing the first Yes, this one requires a little bit more planning, but it's said that the first person you let into your house on New Year's Day should be a dark-haired man and that they should bring with them some coal, a loaf of bread and some whiskey or other alcoholic drink. They're meant to come into the house through the front door, share the drink and toast the house, cut the bread, then help kindle a fire using the coal. Then, once this is done, they're meant to leave via the back door. We're quite familiar with this tradition, as my dad makes Martin do it every year. Oh, yes. And elsewise, it's traditional to open both your front door and back door at 12 noon to let the old year out and the new year in. That's a good and important part of the process. And elsewhere, we also do a few other bits, such as smudging the house by burning sage, opening all the windows and ringing bells in each room to scare off any lingering energies. Mm. And of course, we also sprinkle a little black salt along our window ledges and boundaries once that's done, just to start the year off right. It all makes for quite a busy time of it, to be honest. And you can do other bits too. Sweep your home clean using a besom, ideally one made of silver birch, which is the Celtic tree of the month and first in the calendar, symbolic of cleansing and new beginnings. But if you're hungover from New Year's Eve, then a lot of these traditions can represent A bit of a burpy, fuzzy-headed challenge. Still important to mark the occasion and begin the year as you mean to go on. Absolutely. And with this in mind, should we rouse the county criers from their New Year's hangover and have them ring us into Leicestershire? Most definitely. Now come on, you lot, we've plenty to do and don't pretend you're waiting for a dark-haired male visitor. Leicestershire is located in England's East Midlands. It's bordered by Derbyshire, Nottinghamshire and Lincolnshire to the north, Rutland to the east, Northamptonshire to the southeast, Warwickshire to the southwest and Staffordshire to the west. As always, is a map showing its precise location on the blog at Three Ravens Podcast. Now, I think I'm at an advantage here because I've been to Leicestershire a few times, whereas I think I'm right in saying you never have. No. So before doing my research for this episode, I couldn't have told you where Leicestershire even was. And about the only thing I would have guessed at was that the county town was probably Leicester. And is the county town actually Leicester? It is, with a population of over 360,000 people today, compared to the county's next largest town, Loughborough, which has a population of about 65. 
25,000. So quite the drop off. Okay, so I'm going to guess based on just that, really, that Leicestershire is a county mostly famed for agriculture. Yeah, correct. I mean, it's mostly made up of lowlands with the county bisected by the River Sour. And right up until the Leicestershire coal fields were discovered in the north and west of the county during the Industrial Revolution, the county's two main claims to fame were, firstly, that it was the site of the Battle of Bosworth Field, and secondly, that it was known as the birthplace of fox hunting during the 1600s. Well, to address the fox hunting point first, we at Three Ravens are not fans. No. And I'm very glad it's banned. But does this horrible claim to fame mean that the county at least has a fox on its flag? It does. A dashing beneath the white rose of York, which leads right back to the Battle of Bosworth Field. But while we're here, let's give the county motto a shout out. Forward, forward. That's forward, repeated twice, but with no Ws. Again, a reference to the county's fox hunting legacy. So, along with my penchant for Oliver Cromwell, <laughs> I have to confess, I'm also a bit of a fan of Richard III. Mm. And the Battle of Bosworth Field wasn't exactly great news for my old pal Dickie Three. <laughs> no, Dickie Three, or Richard III, to give him his full title, was, of course, the famous hunchback king of England, famed for killing the princes in the tower and claiming the throne in their stead. The Battle of Bosworth Field was where his forces made their last stand against Henry Tudor, with Richard's death on the battlefield making him the last English monarch to die in battle, and his defeat marking the end of the Wars of the Roses and the end of the English Middle Ages. Quite the momentous event. Mm. And then, of course, his body mysteriously disappeared for 700 years until it was dug up in 2012, buried beneath a car park. Yeah, exactly that. The car park in question hadn't always been a car park, of course. What, you mean Henry hadn't parked his Rolls Royce there before marching to battle? <laughs> uh, no, sadly. Instead, <laughs> back in 1485, when Richard III was interred there, the site was Greyfriars Church. But, like many of Leicestershire's churches, Greyfriars had fallen into disrepair after the dissolution of the monasteries and was pulled down, along with St Martin's Church, which was one of the three earliest churches to have existed in England, predating the Doomsday Book. Okay, wow. So that suggests that Leicester must have been really important before the Norman invasion. Well, it was and it wasn't. It was populated by the Romans, with Watling Street forming part of Leicestershire's county boundary, and the Foss Way also goes from Exeter, way down in the southwest, right up through Leicester. Finally, so it was connected early on then. Oh, most definitely. And there's evidence of settlement dating back over 2,000 years. It was captured by the Anglo-Saxons and ruled over by Mercia. But maybe our most tantalising clue to Leicester's past comes from our pal Geoffrey of Monmouth. Excellent. Come on, Geoffrey, what do you have for us? Well, he wrote in his 12th century History of the Kings of Britain that Leicester and Leicestershire were so named because they were the home of the mythical English king, King Lear. In what Shakespeare done wrote his plays about, blow winds and crack your cheeks, etc, etc. Oh, OK. Oh, I see. OK, so Leicester, Leicestershire. Yeah, and because Geoffrey of Monmouth only ever wrote the truth, uh -huh. that's the story of Leicestershire's founding. It was founded by King Lear. But Martin, I... No, no, Eleanor. Shh, shh. 
rest now. King Lear founded Leicestershire. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, in spite of Leicestershire being this semi-important place, even after the Norman invasion, it didn't have a cathedral. In fact, Leicester Cathedral was only established in the 20th century. One of them. Yep, one of them. And although the county did have a number of once grand abbeys and monasteries, such as Gracedear Priory, Leicester Abbey, and Ulverscroft Priory, it was never the most mega rich, and as a consequence, they were never mega ornate. That said, the county did do well out of wool and farming during the medieval era, but I think it's fair to say that the county's three most beloved products only really grew to prominence centuries later, primarily once all that coal had been found. And with those products being? Well, Melton Mowbray pork pies in at number one, quite possibly the most delicious thing anyone can hope to take with them on a picnic. Seconded. And a culinary delight that enjoys protected status. And then, of course, there's Red Leicester cheese. Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't want to be too down on Red Leicester because we eat quite a bit of it. Yeah. But it's basically a kind of red-coloured cheddar yeah. that makes excellent cheese toppings on things. Yeah, traditionally coloured with carrot or beetroot juice, though in the modern day it's normally dyed with anato, a spice made from a South American seed plant. And then, of course, there's the all-important Leicestershire delicacy, Stilton cheese. Oh, well, I mean, well, we absolutely murdered a Stilton cheese over Christmas, didn't we? <laughs> yeah. We love the stuff. Yeah, I mean, for our American listeners, Stilton cheese is not like most cheese. In fact, it's not really like any other cheese. True. It's very blue, threaded through with veins of mould, and it packs a mighty mighty flavour. A good Stilton feels a little bit like you've been given an electric shock, honestly. Yeah. It's such a strong taste. <laughs> I didn't like it as a child. Oh, no, me neither. But as an adult, it's a one-of-a-kind cheese experience, really. Oh, baby. <laughs> yeah. And so, between Stilton cheese, Red Leicester and Melton Mowbray pork pies, Leicestershire definitely has some tasty delights on offer, but maybe its spiciest contribution to English history comes from one of its earls, whose name has already cropped up on Three Ravens couple of times. Who are we talking about here? Well, none other than Simon de Montfort. Oh, wow. So was he from Leicestershire? Well, he was Earl of Leicestershire. But in case Simon de Montfort doesn't ring any bells, dear listener, he was pretty darn important to the development of the English Parliament. Oh, was he? I mean, he basically rebelled against the king and became de facto ruler of the country. Yeah, he sure did. This was in the 13th century when Simon de Montfort was basically mucked about by King John. Bad King John. Nobody liked him. No, he wasn't anyone's favourite. Famously sucked his thumb in Disney's Robin Hood. But <laughs> anyway, Simon de Montfort was French and his family had previously been Earls of Leicester, only King John switched the title to a different family. So de Montfort came to England after King John died and Henry III had ascended to the throne to take it back. Only then he married King John's daughter Eleanor, the mm. king's sister in secret, reclaiming his earldom and starting to make trouble. He did. I mean, the worst thing he did early on was expelling all the Jews from Leicester, which was absolutely dreadful. He was a hideous anti-Semite, as his father had been, actually. And he was also a notable crusader. But in 1263, England's barons invited Simon de Montfort to take up arms with them against Henry III. Yes, we mentioned this way back in episode one when we were talking about Sussex with mm. the second Barons' War, as this uprising was known, including the Battle of Lewis, when Simon de Montfort captured the king and effectively won the war. While also cancelling all the debts owed to all Jewish families in England, which was, again, 
terrible. In fact, he expelled Jewish communities from all over England, then held two short parliaments, but his power basically couldn't hold. No. And then he was pretty swiftly defeated in battle by forces loyal to Edward, son of Henry III, who later became Edward I. And when the royalist forces killed Simon de Montfort, they did some pretty unsavoury things to his corpse, didn't they? Oh, they sure did. They mutilated him, cutting his body into pieces and sending the various parts to different bits of the country. Plus, they beheaded him, cut off his testicles, then pinned said testicles to his nose and sent that as a gift to Roger Mortimer, the man who'd killed him, as a gift for Mortimer's wife, Maud. Wow. (laughs) People say we live in barbaric times in 2024. I mean... Has anyone recorded Maud's reaction to receiving a nose with balls on it? (laughs) I imagine it would be a polite, thank you? (laughs) Anyway, de Montfort University in Leicestershire is named after Simon de Montfort, which is a dubious honour in my opinion. Oh, for sure. And which bit of him do they have? Yeah. (laughs) Between Richard III and Simon de Montfort, it sounds like Leicestershire has a bit of a testy history. Mm. Does all this mean it has quite a lot of castles? Well, Leicestershire is home to one of the silliest place names we've encountered so far, with a castle named after it, and that is, of course, Ashby de la Zouche. Yeah, I've actually been there. Mm. And I've been at the castle. It, it's ruined, but you can still climb up um, to the top and there's a lovely view. Yeah. It's done by English Heritage. I think it became famous because it featured in Sir Walter Scott's novel Ivanhoe. Yeah, I note you're skipping over who ruined it, that being Oliver Cromwell's <laughs> parliamentarians during the details, Civil War. Details, 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 Martin. <laughs> you can't make an omelette without breaking some eggs or some castles. Well, perhaps not. But maybe the grandest castle in Leicestershire is Beaver Castle. That's beaver spelled B-E-L-V-O-I-R, so nothing like how it's pronounced. Oh, English, you wonderful language. Now, Beaver Castle was initially built in 1066, but if you visit today, you won't find a Norman keep. Rather, the castle has been rebuilt and extended several times, most recently in the 19th century. Despite the fact that it's faux historical in design, it's still pretty gorgeous, with a huge and very nice country park and garden to wander around, which stretches for a whopping... 15,000 acres. Wow, that's a lot of land. It is, and it's privately owned by the Duke of Rutland, so do be careful when going rambling or you might get shot. Tickets are available at the castle box office. So we've got one ruined castle, one faux castle. Does Leicestershire have many old, regular old castle castles? (laughs) You know, ones that survive and look like they were built in the times they're from. I mean, it's lost loads. There were well over 20, most of them now being earthworks or really fragmentary, like what remains of Leicester Castle. But one special one is Kirby Castle, also known as Kirby Muxlow Castle, and that one is a beaut. Does it have a moat? It legitimately does have a moat. It was started in the 1480s and looks quite a lot like Bodium Castle, which is one of our local favourites around here. In which case it's going to be stunning because Bodium is the kind of epitome of what people think of when they think of a romantic castle. Yeah, Kirby Castle is a bit of a stunner. You cross a moat to get to it. It's quadrangular. It used to have a manor house inside, but that's fallen mostly to pieces. And to be fair, it is more of a ruin than Bodium 
stadium with some of its walls having been taken down because they were falling down. But still, it's managed by English Heritage. And if you get the chance, go to see Kirby Castle. It's absolutely amazing. And because it floods, it may not be around forever. Still, it sounds excellent. Kirby Castle, adding that one to the list. Otherwise, though, Leicestershire is a bit more famous for country houses. Again, that coal money and the fruits of empire enabled the landed gentry to build some whacking great estates, making it a bit like the neighbouring county of Northamptonshire. Oh, yes, the county of squires and spires. Mm. But if I remember rightly, Northamptonshire wasn't exactly the most jumping place when it came to folklore and folktales. No, loads of history, bit light on the folklore. And is Leicestershire similar? It is a bit. I mean, my story today is about the big one, Black Annis, but there are a few tidbits to keep us out of mischief, including the county's oldest landmark, the Humber Stone. Oh, the Humber Stone. I'm guessing from the name it's a big stone. Yes, it is. A menhir made of red granite. It's gone by many names over the years, including the Hell Stone and the Holy Stone. It's theorised that it was deposited during the last Ice Age and was used for a time as a pagan altar. It's mostly buried now, but the very top is visible and you can go and visit it. But it's said to be cursed, so do be careful. Cursed how? Well, several attempts have been made to break it up or move it over the years, but bad things happened to anyone who tried. One built a hay barn over it, but that burned down, and another ended up in a downward spiral of bad luck, losing his wife, family and farmhouse in a sequence of terrible developments. Then, maybe most recently, during the 1980s, the family who owned the Humberstone tried to dig it up and were terrorised by a horned shadow creature who basically ruined their lives until they buried it back where they found it. It sounds quite a lot like the Hexham Heads. It's just like the Hexham Heads, actually, in that the son of the family, while at school, did a series of quite detailed and graphic drawings of the goat-headed demon that used to appear in their house at night, which made quite a stir at the time. Blimey. Well, maybe we can live without visiting the Humberstone. Yeah, probably. I'm not sure I want to bring a goatee demon home with me. No, I'm with you there. And remember in previous episodes, we encountered the giant bell. Yes, Bell's Causeway and so on. Mm. He didn't get along very well with his wife, as I remember. Well, indeed. And at Belgrave in Leicestershire, it said that Bell the Giant died and was laid to rest. So the legend goes, he'd taken a bet that he couldn't get from the village of Mount Sorrel to Leicester in three enormous jumps on the back of his horse. And though he leapt in one bound to one lip and the second reached Burstall, the third saw his horse dying in midair with Bell crashing to his death a little way short of Leicester and the site thereafter named Belgrave in his honour. I love that. A cocky giant dying while attempting to win a bet. Mm -hmm. You've got to respect that level of dedication to a wager, haven't you? You do. And that relates to a little trio of ghost stories, actually, one of which is set at Belgrave Hall. Now, I'm guessing this is one of those stately homes you mentioned, but I've got to ask you, Martin. Yeah? If Beaver is pronounced the way it is, should we be pronouncing him Bee the Giant? Well, yeah, maybe Bee we Grave should. Hall? Bee Grave Hall, yeah. It, it, I mean, can somebody from Leicestershire please clear this up for me? Why yeah. is it Beaver and possibly Belgrave? Or yeah. maybe it's Bee Grave? Yeah, yeah. Tell it's, us more. It's confusing, We're intrigued. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway, so... Belgrave House, or Beegrave House, I guess, uh, <laughs> dates from the 18th century when Edmund Craddock, a hosiery merchant, built the building but died soon after its completion. 
It passed through several hands over the years, including John Ellis, a wealthy businessman who was responsible for bringing the railways to Leicester. But alas, Ellis's daughters, the Belgrave sisters, were all incredibly active in the suffragette and women's rights movements, yet all three never married and lived and died there, and it's said that they still haunt the hall to this day. In fact, there's CCTV footage from the house which seems to show the ghost of Charlotte at Ellis on camera. Whoa, well, ghost suffragettes. That's a new one. I love it. Although I'm not sure I really want to encounter a single grey lady or white lady. (laughs) I think meeting three at once would be really rather intimidating, (laughs) even if they do want universal suffrage. Yeah, yeah, true enough. (laughs) Um, Then there's a Bow Manor Hall, another stately home. This one on the edge of the Charmwood Forest. It's been built and rebuilt loads of times. And during World War II, it was used by British military intelligence. But before then, and since, it has been famous as a site for poltergeist activity. Specifically, the spectre is said to belong to a coachman who hanged himself there during the 18th century. And part of his fury has come about because he can't seem to find his way out of the house that was rebuilt in a new formation that he basically doesn't recognise. Oh, bloke, that sounds rough, doesn't it? Yeah. Imagine haunting a place that's utterly unfamiliar, (laughs) doomed to be trapped in a building that you can't get out of. It sounds an awful fate. Which is probably why from World War II onwards it's been pretty well recorded that glasses, plates and cutlery go suddenly flying off tables and smash into walls, doors open and close, slamming at random. I mean, it's a rather nice country house hotel according to its website, but you might be taking your life in your hands if you stay there. Nothing anyone needs is a salad fork in the eyeball. No thanks. (laughs) Okay, then last but not least, and again, there are many more haunted spots in Leicestershire, but I'm picking some highlights here. There's Chantry House and Skeffington House, which together are known as the Newark Houses Museum. These buildings date from the Elizabethan era and were both used in the Siege of Leicester during the Civil War. These days they function as Leicester's Social History and Royal Leicestershire Regiment Museums, but they are haunted by all sorts of nasty things. Such as? Well, there's a range of apparitions, including a faceless Elizabethan gentleman on one of the staircases, the ghost of a little boy believed to have died when the houses were bombed in World War II. He's meant to run around the place, particularly at night. And then, perhaps most disturbingly, there are meant to be loads of royalist soldiers who pop up here and there, some patrolling the grounds, some quaking and wailing as if reliving the siege of the city. And all told, the Newark Houses Museum is not a place to spend the night. That is, of course, unless you want to be utterly terrified. No, I can live without abject horror. Thank you very much. (laughs) The ghost we encountered on our Rye Ghost Tour for our supporters on Patreon was nasty enough. I don't need ghost children in my life or ghost soldiers. In which case, shall we quick march into our story for this week? Yes, please. Excellent. Well, my tale for this episode is called Black Anise, and it's about one of the most famous legends in Leicestershire, a shape-shifting monstrous witch who's said to have lived in a cave on Dane Hill, allegedly stealing children and tanning their skin for leather. Now start spinning my yarn right after this. (laughs) 
If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Long ago, between the banks of the River Soar and Rothley Brook, Leicester Forest stood tall and dark and wild. The earls of Leicester hunted there, staining the earth with the blood of beasts caught on their spears, and out of that unholy ground grew men of an unholy order. For centuries, the monks of Leicester Abbey were known as Black Cannons. They dressed as shadows, rearing, barking hounds which fouled the flagstones of the Houses of God. If you wander the ruins of Leicester Abbey now, then you will find, amongst the grass and rubble, the ghost of Cardinal Wolsey, who died there en route to his trial for treason. That place was ever a den of corruption, and few wept when it was raised to the ground in the disillusion. But fire liked that place, whether the fires of hell or some other primal force. The blackened stones were used to build Cavendish House, but by 1645 that too had burned, licked by the lapping tongues of flame. This left little but a mess of jagged ruins, haunted by the spectres who freely wander the remains of Abbey Park. Centuries before, however, Leicester Abbey had held a prisoner whose soul was destined for a darker fate. A hostage of Richard of York, the hunchbacked cripple king who sallied forth in 1485 and left his own blood in the earth of Bosworth Field. Though he perished there, hacked to death amid the clashing chaos of the fray, his corpse was ridden back to Leicester naked and slung into the choir of Greyfriars Church to be forgotten. Yet Richard had known he was riding to his doom that day, having sought wisdom from the very soul whose name echoes in infamy, Black Annis, a seer he kept in his bitter retinue. Though her legend now is monstrous, she was once a holy maid. Her name was Agnes Scott, and she was one of many hostages Richard kept to dampen the fury of his foes. 
a bastard daughter of Edward IV and his mistress witch Jane Shaw, Agnes carried her mother's gifts within her blood. Unlike Jane, who'd honed her talents out of books found in her lover's libraries, Agnes had no such advantage. While her mother had been known as the Rose of London, charming Thomas More, William Hastings and Thomas Linham, the King's Solicitor General, Agnes was like her uncle. Born with a twisted spine, the only hints of her royal lineage shone through her moon-white skin, pale and spider-webbed with dark blue veins. Her eyes were red and wet with ever-flowing tears, and from girlhood, Richard coveted the wisdom she offered, hating her all the more for being so ugly, so malformed, and so much his own crooked shadow. It was Agnes who told him, Where your spur should strike on the ride into battle, your head shall be broken on the return. Her prophecy came true, though no sooner had it slipped through her youthful lips than Richard had struck her for it. He'd sent her from there to the care of the abbot, but on the ride to Bosworth Field, the king's spur struck the bridgestone of Leicester's Bow Bridge. The dark omen's second part was realised when his corpse was carried back from his great defeat, the dead king's mangled skull striking the same stone and breaking open just as his niece had warned. While Richard had died in infamy, Agnes had been kept locked in a cell by the Black Cannons. When Henry Tudor ascended to the throne, she was then spirited away, and for years she lived as an anchoress, locked within a simple cell beneath St. Martin's Church. To keep off the rats, cats became her companions, with the poor of Leicester coming to hear her holy wisdom. She was screened from the public sight by a leather curtain which was stretched and pinned over the hagioscope which bordered the street. Through this squint slight window, she told passers-by of her dreams, offered help in times of trouble and advice in all matters. Through another slot, she was fed, though only the simplest food, and through a third, she heard mass and could view St. Martin's altar. But in all weathers, all seasons, that place was her home, through sickness, health, hot summers and long winters. From her cell, Agnes heard the construction of Wigston's house, listened to the talk of rolling sicknesses of changes in the nation's fate. But while bishops and abbots grew old and died, Agnes lived on and on, her feline friends keeping her warm, bringing her news of the outside, slipping through the holes in the walls through which she could only peer. Generations of cats all through the city knew her name, and some said she learned to change shape to become a cat herself, visiting the fishmongers at High Cross and stalking the Saturday shambles in Market Square, hunting for bargains. As the new century unfurled, the Guild of Corpus Christi was dissolved, and St. Martin's Church, which had stood since the times of Pender of Mercia, fell into disrepair. The bricks of her cell were removed to be sold, and Agnes moved on, seeking ways to use her wisdom elsewhere. For a time, she took up residence at the leper colony at Burton Lazars, hiding her own ageless, deformed shape in much the same manner as the ailing souls she served. 
Though wrapped in lengths of cloth and surrounded by the dying and the damned, she was feared and pitied, even in spite of her good works. And alas, even the Order of St. Lazarus was not exempt from the fires of the disillusion, so Agnes journeyed back into Leicester Forest, finding there, in that blood-rich earth, a hollow in a cave at the top of Dane Hill to finally call her home. By then, the woods about that place were thinned, felled to fuel the growth of Leicester and the villages nearby. In the places where lords had ridden in thundering blood sport, calm had settled, men rearing long wool sheep and minding them in the meadows thereabouts. But as years rolled by, rumours grew of the woman who lived in the cave at the hill's top. She had taken to pinning sheets of leather over the hollows in the rocks, hiding herself from view. Some brave souls went to her grotto seeking wisdom and cures, but all about, perched in the trees, cats watched and stalked and hissed, guarding her from unwanted visitation. In payment, it was said she accepted lambs, which she reared and, so it was said, slaughtered in strange rites. Others left her gifts of gold, though she never made to spend it. Some said she had a hoard of treasure, and greedy men from time to time would try to lure her out to steal it. To do so, they would catch a cat and kill it, dousing the beast's remains in aniseed, tying it with rope, and riding by her cave, dragging the creature's tiny corpse behind. Yet it never worked, though on moonlit nights many spoke of the blue-skinned hag who roamed Dane Hill, the sky filled with yowling, the trees marked by claw-like slashes from the creature none saw but all knew as Black Annis. Though one man did see her and lived to tell of it. His name was Bailey Drover, and he hailed from Thorpe Astley, born of humble stock. His son, Falk, was his helper, and together they led their flock from Enderby to Peckerton, on to Ratby and back down, ever fearful to avoid Dane Hill, as all folks did. Alas, one day, while Bailey and his boy were leading their sheep from Glenfield down to Braunston, One fled, running deeper into the forest, and Falk gave chase, headed off towards Black Anis Hollow. Bailey well knew that his son had heard the tales and would never risk meddling with the witch woman of Dane Hill. Yet, as afternoon moved towards night, Falk did not return, and Bailey determined he had little choice but to go off in search of his son. He took his shepherd's crook with him, a dagger tucked into his belt, and a flaming torch to light his way. And as he wandered Leicester Forest, he heard them in the trees, the cats, spitting, mewling, skittering through the dark. They warned him off, telling him to stalk no further into that domain with such dark thoughts in his heart. His jaw grimly set, Bailey pulled wool from his coat, twirling it to stuff his ears. This blocked out the wailing of the beasts whose eyes glinted in the dark. Yet they watched him still, their tails twitching, considering whether or not to pounce, his breath rattling out as jets of steam floating aimless through the night air. 
Where he walked, twigs snapped, which to him seemed like the cracking of children's bones. And the wind roved through the trees, the branches shaking, blocking the stars from above, though he heard nothing save his own pulse thundering in his ears. In time, he saw through the trees the orange glow of a fire burning. He extinguished his torch and moved towards it, the shapes of cats moving to keep pace with his passing. And in time, he came to see about the fire a shape dressed in rags which trailed about the campfire. It was the witch, he knew, and atop the blaze was a cauldron bubbling. He watched as she tipped herbs from wooden bowls into the kettle, stirring them with a black iron ladle, the cave behind her said to have been dug with the witch's own monstrous claws. Crouching low, Bailey hid behind some briars, peering about for signs of his son. As he did, he smelled the stench of tanning and noticed all through the trees hung up in frames leather drying, the skins he feared of Black Annis's victims. And though he could not hear her, he saw the shrouded figure's lips moving. It was an incantation, he knew, which sounded like a haunting lullaby, a song she was singing over a small, shadowy form. His heart ran cold as Bailey saw that shape. It was Falk, his boy, laid out on a pallet of sheep's wool and dry leaves. And beside Falk was the lost sheep, tethered to a pole as if ready, like his son, to be slaughtered. Gathering his nerves, Bailey drew his blade, standing and dashing out of his hiding place. As he ran, cats skittered and yowled, some tripping him, others darting across his path, all seeming as demons, black in the shadows cast by the fire. And Bailey raised his blade, dashing towards Black Annis, seeking to bring the dagger down into the witch's black heart and end her nights of terror up in that savage place. The shrouded woman turned as he ran towards her, raising her hands, screaming in broken-toothed terror. Bailey saw her long, dirty, talon-like fingernails roaring, and the crone fell away, muttering, begging. Yet Bailey's ears were blocked, and he could not hear a word she said. Instead, he closed in on her, backing her against the wall by the entrance to her cave, seeing her look desperately from Falk's pallet towards Bailey and back again. Bailey saw her lips moving and twisted his own, horrified by the red-eyed face he saw. And what he failed to hear was Agnes Scott's entreaties that he stop, be careful, for Falk was awake. This was because she had found the boy injured, fallen in a gully, and had brought him to her grotto for food and rest. She had helped the boy to find the lost sheep and secured it until morning when it would be safer to make the return journey. And in those brief hours, looking with his innocent eyes, Falk had seen Agnes as anything but a monster. A kind soul, patient, fearful, yet mild, he'd laughed with her, prayed with her, and come to think of Black Annis as his friend. It was the boy's instincts which impelled him to leap to his feet and dash forward. 
his good heart which saw him run between Black Annis and his father's blade. But all was doubly in vain, for as Bailey's dagger slashed through the dark, he did not hear his son's last words, nor did he slay his intended target. Instead, he plunged the blade deep into his own son's heart, killing him stone dead. Appalled by his crimes, the shepherd staggered back, falling and knocking Agnes's cauldron. The boiling contents spilled over him, the bubbling stew scorching his eyes, blinding him forevermore. The rest of Agnes' night was spent intending to Bailey Drover. She saved his life, though his face was scarred forevermore. The clods of wool within his ears were extracted, and she sang to him, whispering calming words as he drifted in and out of consciousness. And all about them, the cats sang to the stars, mewling over the death of Falk, who was buried not far off in earth all too accustomed to slaughter. The following day, Agnes led the blind shepherd back down from Dane Hill, guiding his steps. But without his sight, Bailey Drover could never again find his way back up to Black Annis's Hollow. And though he told all who would listen that their rumours were not true, that the blue-faced hag they all called Black Annis was no monster or beast with a taste for human flesh, her dark legend only grew. The drag hunts continued, the dead cats ridden on by her bower. Songs were written in fear of her, windows built smaller to stop her fitting through and hung with charms and bundles of herbs. Yet all the cats of Leicestershire know her, and if you ask them they will say so, attesting that to this day Black Annis will run with them at midnight and feed them milk from wooden bowls and stroke them with her long-nailed fingers. Alas, this is the way with ugly things. People make up stories far darker than the truth, for if they are not maligned then they are forgotten no matter how good they may be of heart or how kind they are, in spite of all the cruelties of the world. Well, there you go, Eleanor. Black Annis. I really like that, Martin. Oh, Although, good. I've got to say, niece of Richard III. <laughs> yeah. Any historical basis in fact or just fun? Well, a little bit fun. Um, in terms of the historical Agnes Scott, our friend Ronald Hutton, ah, yes. very famed antiquarian and a student of ancient history and the past and folklore, uh, he reckons that that is actually who she is and was. Okay. So he, his theory is that she was a woman who worked for the Order of St. Lazarus and at Burton Lazar's, a real place in mm-hmm. Leicestershire, and that uh, rumours about her span out into her being a monster. So was she really Richard's niece? Well, no, I don't no. think so. I, I just thought there was an opportunity there. And thought, yeah, it's fun. I like it a lot. <laughs> but, I yeah. like that. So Martin and I recently listened to a really interesting podcast about Julian of Norwich. Yes. Um, and obviously you making Annis an anchorite. Yeah, yeah. Tied in with that. 
a super interesting practice. Oh, wild. If you don't see. know very much about anchoresses or anchorites, then do do a little bit of reading into them because they're absolutely fascinating. But I mean, everything else in the story is pretty much true. Like the black cannons of, of Leicester Abbey, absolutely true. Um, do you think that's where she got the name Black Anna? Well, that was the kind black of cannons. the connection yes. that I, I drew. No, that makes sense. And then Jane Shaw was a real person, of course. But Jane Shaw is one of those people who has more folklore than history. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we talked about Grimm's Ditch in the last episode. Mm. Jane Shaw's spectre is meant to rock up at the edge of Grimm's Ditch and just sort of poodle around. (laughs) That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's all sorts about her that's really got no basis in fact I also talked about Rosamund Clifford and yeah. it's a similar sort of thing that's very yeah these sort of mythologies that were woven around these women who were connected to kings yeah well mistresses of kings very often yeah exactly and how they died and was it suspicious etc but also this whole thing about soaking dead cats in aniseed and leading them past black anise's bower true Happened for centuries. And that was meant to have the effect of... What, like baiting her? Baiting and, and tempting her. tempting her out to come and give chase, yeah. Interesting. It makes me wonder, the name Anis and the herb aniseed. Yeah, yeah. Is that the connection? Is that why it's called that? Could be. Who knows? That's I mean, really interesting, Obviously, with a lot it? of these stories, we just have to clutch at the straws as presented. To try and weave it into something that might make sense. <laughs> well, I like that you rehabilitated her, although I was rather hoping that she might be a monstrous cat lady after that fabulous poem that our listener Andy sent into us where she is a sort of monster. Well, uh, you know me, I quite like to take the idea of a terrifying woman and then actually explain. Turn her into a nice person who has been wronged by society. Most of the time that is what happens. Well, exactly. That's one of my three ravens memes. <laughs> anyway, should we move on to correspondence? Yes, let's. Well, it's been quieter than usual, which probably shouldn't come as a huge surprise considering it has been Christmas. No, indeed. But we did hear from lots of lovely people who really enjoyed our ghost story for Christmas, The 13th Step, and our Christmas special from last Monday. Yes, thank you so much to Simon, Trudy, Sam, Mary, Charles, Tony, Vivian, Emma, Louise, Ruth, Emily, Galeria, Rachel, Lissa and Donna for all of your kind words and Christmas wishes. And special thanks to Charles, who also recorded a lovely bit of video of the sun coming up on Christmas morning, which he posted to the Three Ravens podcast group on Facebook. Thank you also to Alicia, who posted an article all about stargazy pie, Mm. which is a Cornish Christmas tradition, a pie baked with whole fish whose heads are set poking up through the pastry as if looking to the heavens. It's a sight to behold, it really is. The pie is particularly famous in Mausel, where it's baked every year on December the 23rd to celebrate a monster haul on that date by local fisherman Tom Borcock towards the end of the 19th century. And although I think it looks amazing, we've never quite been brave enough to make one, have No, we? we're afraid we'll get it wrong and end up with a load of burned fish heads poking out of our pie. Still, very cool tradition. Once again, no new reviews to read out this week. That is the third Monday Yes, please. If you have five minutes, do hop onto iTunes or Apple Podcasts and write us a review. We will read it out. But thank you to all of those people who dropped stars and thumbs up on their favoured podcast apps. Everyone really does help. It really does. And please, as always, do tell your friends about Three Ravens. Keep pushing to help us reach new people. The bigger we get, the more we can do. Mm. And thank you to everyone who is gronking from the rooftops to keep the podcast growing. Speaking of which, in terms of our likers, commenters and 
super sharers this week. Thank yous go to Eric, Justin, Dominic, Sabrina, Martin, Pete and Lizzie on Facebook, Book Chat Weekly, Stuart, Yorkie Viv, Maya Parson and Louis Young on Instagram, and the Paranormal Reason podcast, St. Joe, Grimpoot Collector Society, Indie Catley, and Paco on Twitter. As always, please find us and join in the fun on social media at facebook.com forward slash Three Ravens Podcast, Instagram at Three Ravens Podcast, and on X or Twitter at Three Ravens Pod. Mm. And if you have folklore from your area for a future listener episode or interesting folky anecdotes, perhaps a local ghost story, or if you'd like to enter our micro fiction contest by sending us a folktale of up to 1,000 words, do email us at Three Ravens podcast at gmail.com if you'd like to support the podcast and gain access to loads of bonus and exclusive content including our three ravens film club episode from last thursday all about kwai dan or today's brand new three ravens newsletter do sign up to our patreon for just three dollars a month or six dollars a month at patreon.com forward slash three ravens podcast we'll be back on thursday with our first magic and medicines bonus episode for the year where i'm going to be talking about poppets and then next Next Monday, we're off to Essex, where I've got so much strangeness to tell you about. Excellent. Well, I'm excited already. And in the meantime, while our story's gone that way, we'll go this way. And remember, don't whistle till you're out of the woods. Thanks and credit go to the Leicestershire Guild of Storytelling for their book, Leicestershire and Rutland Folk Tales, The Story of Leicester website, and Visit Leicester, all of which were very useful in my research for this episode. Our theme song is the traditional folk ballad Three Ravens, performed by Eleanor Conlon and Ben Harbour, and our logo is designed by Ollie James Dare. The Three Ravens podcast is a Rust and Stardust production, written and produced by me, Martin Vaughs. Thanks for listening. God sent every gentleman Such hounds, such hawks, and such lean man With a down, derry, 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 down, down on a budget we still deserve nice things quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands they have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at 50 dollars, luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. 
Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.